Hey, y'all. <laughs> Here we are. Easter Sunday, the most anticipated Sunday of the year. The Sunday that carries with it more expectations. <laughs> this is really, y'all are really right there, aren't you? <laughs> We're going to have to kind of get used to this. It's going to be kind of cool. Lots of expectations on this day. What kind of music will you hear? What kind of decorations will you see? What people will you see and what will they be wearing to celebrate this most important of all Sundays? For many people, this moment that we're in right now, this is the most important moment that carries the greatest expectation. What will the sermon be? What will the pastor say? And I know many are praying right now, Lord, please don't let him mess this one up. There's so many people. In general, we, we view this as the most evangelistic moment of the year, an opportunity to give this riveting, stirring defense of the resurrection to prove that it really happened. To many who are already believers in Christ, they graciously give this Sunday away to the Christers, those who come only at Christmas and Easter. Or those who never come at all, this moment is all about them hearing the good news of the resurrection and believing. But I don't believe that proving the resurrection is the most effective use of our time this morning. Establishing and proving the facts, even if I were able to do that conclusively after 2,000 years, would not necessarily produce faith anymore than it produced faith 2,000 years ago among those people who truly knew the reality of the resurrection and chose to deny it anyway. I think the writers of the Gospels, Mark in particular, wrote for a different purpose than to present us with facts for us to analyze. Mark doesn't even present all the facts Instead, I think the the gospel writers wrote many years after the event because the facts of the resurrection carry with them implications for our lives. Scary implications, unsettling implications, uncomfortable implications for our lives. Jesus' resurrection establishes a new kingdom and requires a new way of living. So it's easier to deny the facts, deny the facts, cover up a body that went missing than it is to adjust to the new reality. I believe that when we are always focused on the facts of the resurrection, when we're always trying to defend it, when we're always trying to prove it, we don't look closely at the implications of what the resurrection means for our lives. So I think that we make best use of our time this morning when we consider what does this historical event mean to and require of us? How is it supposed to change and transform our lives and our church? What hope is it meant to give us? When we'll think through answers to questions like that, then we don't need to put an undue burden on this one Sunday of the year. Instead, by using the day for this purpose, we prepare ourselves to live radically changed lives the other 364 days of the year around people who may not ever 
sit in a pew beside us. The implications of the resurrection must change us so that we can change the world. So if you ever bought your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn into the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, halfway in the Bible, Matthew and then Mark. And when you found Mark, turn to chapter 16. And when you found Mark chapter 16, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can hear read together the word of the living God. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early... On the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your promise. Your promise is that you will bless the reading and hearing of your word. We've read your word, Lord, this morning. It's been heard by all of these people. So now we need to add you to add your blessing to it, Lord, through the power of your spirit. Make your word living truth to us this morning. Change us, transform us by your truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can I ask y'all, this is a brand new microphone. Can y'all hear? I don't know where to put it. Can you hear? The speakers are all new, really. Can everybody hear? Amen. All right, thank you, Jim. We say that a lot here. Over the course of the past four weeks leading up to this Sunday, we have been considering what we call the week that changed the world. And day by day, we've looked at every day of the last week of Jesus' life. And as we looked at that week, we have discovered that it is, was a stirring week, that it shook up beliefs, it questioned social and religious structures. It was a week that exposed wrong worldviews, and it was a week that shattered everyone's expectations about who Jesus is. By his action on Palm Sunday, the first day of that week, Jesus boldly proclaimed himself to be the king of the kingdom of God. So what does God's kingdom look like? Well, Micah 6.8 tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Just that one verse goes a long way in describing for you and for me what the kingdom of God should look like here on this earth, a just world, 
a world where kindness is embraced, a world where people are humbled by God's grace and goodness to them and who therefore consider others better than themselves. Can you imagine such a world? God can. And so Jesus comes not only to provide a way for eternal life for us, but he comes to make a world like this possible while you and I wait for the next one that is to come. This morning, we come to the greatest day of the week that changed the world, the day we call Easter Sunday. And as we have done over the course of the last four weeks, we are going to allow Mark to tell us the story through his gospel. We're only going to look at the first eight verses of Mark. Look down in your Bible, if you will, if you have one. And I'm quite certain that all of you have a a note right after verse 8. And that note reads something like this. The earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through 20. Who sees that note in their Bible? All right, we don't have time to debate this. I'll only say that the best scholarship from the majority of the brightest minds for many years agree that verses 9 through 20 were not originally written by Mark. They were added later to smooth out and to to complete this gospel that seemed to end so abruptly. So we're not going to include them in Mark's story this morning. Let's hear what the story is. As the Spirit of God inspired Mark to write it and to consider what the implications of this story are, the transformation it requires in our lives... I want to consider four implications this morning. Now you're starting to sweat. Because sermons are only supposed to have what? Three points, right? Ah, but relax. It's gloomy outside. What better thing do you have to do? Four implications. The first one is this. The facts of this story imply, and then they require a strong faith and a deep love for Christ. Look in verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. These are the facts describing their actions. But what are the implications that accompany these factual statements? The implications are that these women came to Jesus' tomb at great personal risk. Never forget that Jesus was executed as an insurrectionist, one who was attempting to establish a counter-kingdom to the empire of Rome, one who was attempting, they believed, to establish his own throne over against the throne of Caesar. And so working in tandem, the Roman government and the religious leaders of the Jews crucified Jesus to eliminate the threat. So, being associated with someone like Jesus could be physically dangerous to your person. The other 11 disciples believed so. They fled when Jesus was arrested. And the next we hear from them in the Gospels, what are they doing? They are hiding. They are locked away in fear in a room. But these women did not flee. The women, guys, the women did not flee. Mark tells us that Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome, they were watching the crucifixion 
from a distance. They did not flee. The same women followed Joseph of Arimathea. He went to Pilate and said, may I have Jesus' body? Pilate said, yes, you can have his body. And so Joseph took the body of Jesus to his own tomb and he put him in the tomb and then he let go of the stone so that it could roll in front of that tomb. And Mark tells us the women were watching and they saw it all. These women come to Jesus' tomb at great risk. Now look in verse 2. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, these women made their way to the tomb. What's implied by these facts? Deep love for faith in Jesus. It seems like it should have been otherwise. It seems like these women should have been crushed by Jesus' crucifixion. It seems that they should believe at this point that they had wrongly placed their faith in him. It seems that they should have stayed home and wondered, why is it that Jesus did not save himself when he was mocked and ridiculed? He saved others. Why did he not call on a a legion of angels to come and save him? Why? It would not have been unkind not to go to the tomb. Joseph and Nicodemus... They had already wrapped Jesus' body with strips of linen mixed with a mixture of 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. 75 pounds. That's a lot of spices, very expensive. So Jesus, in effect, had already had a royal burial. So so why take the risk? Why not just stay at home? Strong faith and deep love propelled the women to the tomb. Because whatever happened on the cross, even if they could not understand what happened there, what they did understand, Mary Magdalene in particular, was that Jesus had changed them. Mary was a new person because of Jesus Christ and what he had done for her. She was a free person, a loved person because of Jesus. Anyone would have been wasting their time to try to convince Mary otherwise. Jesus once said, The one who is forgiven little loves little. Conversely, the one who is loved, who is forgiven much, is loves much. Jesus' forgiveness of Mary was vast and it was real. And she loves so deeply, even though she could not make sense of everything that was happening. And so her faith in and her love for Jesus allowed her to go to the tomb at great risk to perform this one last act of love. Here we all are. Here we are. Easter Sunday morning. We make good use of this opportunity when the facts of this story cause us to consider how much it is that Jesus has done for us. He who is forgiven much, she who is forgiven much, loves much. He has forgiven much. Do you believe that? He has forgiven much. Do you believe that? When we play down the gravity of our own sin. 
when we play down the gravity of the sins of others, when we dismiss our common need for the forgiveness of Christ, when you and I believe, oh, it's better to be positive, it's better to be affirming, oh, it's better to build someone's self-esteem, to say, I'm okay, you're okay. Why would anyone love Jesus at all? Why would anyone need Jesus at all? What difference does Jesus really make if I'm okay and you're okay? I'll tell you, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. You are not okay. Not without Jesus. When we see our need for him, the forgiveness he's given to us, we are transformed. We love him deeply. We put great faith in him. We've got to think about how much we've been forgiven. We must think about what Christ has forgiven us. That's what will increase our love for him, make it strong and deep. We've got to think about the change that Christ has brought in our lives. And when we think about the change and the difference he's made, our faith will grow stronger. And we will believe him for that same powerful work in the lives of others. It's not only for our own sakes that we believe these things. It's for the sake of all those around us as we seek to build the kingdom of God. It's only as we love deeply and have strong faith that we will reach out to others with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you this, people of consistently weak faith and shallow love, they're not going to bring about much change in this world. It requires strong faith and deep love to set us free from our own fears, to prevent us from locking ourselves away in our own little world and forgetting about everyone else. It requires strong faith and deep love to take risks for Jesus like these women took. Strong faith, deep love, fear-free, bold risk-takers. They're the ones who take the good news of the resurrected Christ to the city and to the world and make it a place of justice and mercy, a place where people seek not only their own interests, but work on behalf of others as well. The kind of world that God intends. Secondly, second implication, you and I must trust in the presence of the Lord. Great trust, the presence of the Lord, that's what we must have. As Mark tells the story, these women are walking along, and they have one of those, oh no, moments when you remember something really important that you forgot. I have those moments from time to time. And if anyone here says, amen, I'm coming out of the pulpit to get you. I have those moments, and you do too. And when I have them, it feels like all the blood just drains from my body. Oh, no. The women have one of those moments. They've gone up early, they've gone to the market, they've purchased the spices they need, they've thrown caution to their wind, they make their way to the tomb, but then they realize, oh no, it might all be for nothing. Look in verse 3. Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Clearly, the answer to that question is, no one. No one of them can roll the stone away. All three of them together couldn't possibly roll that stone away. But in the goodness of the Lord... He did not allow this problem to occur to them when they first started their journey or even when they were halfway through it. Otherwise, they might have turned around 
and gone home. He allows them to think of this. They turn the corner, they look ahead, and they see that the stone has already been rolled away. Mark is the only gospel writer that records this question of these women. And so how does Mark intend to encourage the church? People like you and me. People who are called to be light in this world. People who are called to shine like the stars of the universe in a crooked and perverse generation. How is this meant to encourage us for the rest of our lives on earth? There will be before us what appear insurmountable problems. Until the day we die, we're going to be asking, but how am I going to, but who's going to, but blah, 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 blah. We'll never stop. We will never have any difficulty finding real problems and fretting over real obstacles. But then we remember, ah, the stone was rolled away. How? How was it rolled away? Mark doesn't tell us. Did you notice that? He doesn't tell us. Is this a divine omission? So that when people who read Mark's story and hear Mark's story, they won't focus over much on the specific facts and details of how God did it. So you and I, we may be labeled simple. We may be labeled sentimental. But we know that the presence of the Lord is real. And we, with great trust, believe that God can still move obstacles. Do you believe that? Without this kind of trust, without this kind of trust in the presence of the Lord and this mysterious, powerful working of God, what are our options when we encounter problems and obstacles that we most certainly will encounter when we seek to build the kingdom of God? Everyone in the world doesn't want a just world. You can't get ahead. You can't gain for yourself if you can't take advantage of others. Everybody doesn't want a just world. Everybody doesn't want a world that's full of mercy because being merciful takes too much time and too much effort. People don't want to be humble or walk humbly. What do we want? The spotlight. Yeah, I want to be a star. Yes, obstacles will come as we seek to build the kingdom of God. Without great trust, you and I will shy away from those stones, turn around, give up, and go back home. But with great trust, we won't let their existence prevent us from doing what the Lord has called us to do. We will press on to do that which God has called us to do. Mark writes to us to assure us of the presence of the Lord These women were not abandoned as they walked along the road. The Lord knew of the obstacles facing them, and he moved it out of their way. After all, the stone wasn't moved to let Jesus out, right? The stone was moved to let everybody else in. The third implication. See, we're moving along now. The third implication of the story is that when we say yes to Christ, we must say no to other things. When we say yes to Christ, we must say no to other things. So now we come to the greatest part of the story. The women enter the tomb, the stone has been rolled away, and they discover that Jesus is not there. He is risen. 
pay. And that, of course, is why we're here this morning. Jesus' grave is empty because God, through his mighty power, brought his much-loved son back to life. God would not allow death to keep its grip on his son. God would not allow death to decay him. God did not send his son into the world to be destroyed by sin and death. He sent his son for a much different purpose, right? To be the one who would destroy sin and death forever and ever. To rob Satan of his spoils. No more will he be able to keep people enslaved to sin and living in fear of death. They can be free from both. And so, the resurrection is God's resounding yes to Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. Jesus is Lord. Yes. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes. Jesus' death on the cross was an acceptable sacrifice for sin. Yes. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to God the Father, full and free. Yes. The resurrection is God's yes to all of that. And at the same time, it is God's deafening no to every other power. To the power of Rome that crucified Jesus. No, you will not have the victory. To the empire who said, Caesar is Lord. God, by raising Jesus, said, no, Jesus is Lord. To the religious leaders who believed that they had secured their power and their position by having Jesus put to death, God says, no, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. The resurrection of Jesus proves that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. The resurrection is God's yes, yes, yes. Mark tells a story so that we'll say yes to Jesus as God has said yes to him. And if you're here this morning and you have never said yes to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe, I pray that this will be the day that you do that. And I am simple enough to believe in the power of God to make that change in your heart. But know this, that when you say yes to Jesus, as so many of us have, that means saying no to other things in our lives. Saying yes to Jesus is not just acknowledging and analyzing facts of his death and his resurrection. It's saying yes to the implication of those facts. It means that you and I become passionate about what Jesus is passionate. Passionate enough was he to leave the glory and the unimaginable splendor of heaven to come and live on earth, which is neither glorious nor splendor. Splendid. Passionate enough to come and establish the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is counter to every other kingdom on earth, a kingdom that exists for a different purpose than every other kingdom on earth. And what kind of kingdom, what kind of world would God have this be? Oh, that's right. He's told us, hasn't he? He's told us what is good and what he desires from us, that we do justly, that we love mercy, and that we walk humbly with our God. The exact life we see Jesus living on earth. Saying yes to Jesus means saying yes to the same things to which he said yes. Yes to acts of love. Yes to acts of mercy. Yes to acts of compassion and grace. It means saying no to words. It means saying no to actions. 
that deprive those created in God's image of love and mercy and compassion and grace. It means saying no to things that rival Christ for our attention and our affection. I will not say those words. I will not do those acts. I will not perpetuate oppressive systems. I will not tacitly endorse them by settling, sitting idly by and doing nothing because I say yes to Jesus. Yes, he is Lord. Yes, I will share his passions. This is the implication of the facts of the resurrection. So you and I need to ask ourselves, how are we saying yes to Jesus every day? You and I need to look at our lives and and figure out what it is that we need to say no to in order that we can say yes to Jesus. There are other implications, but I promised four, and four is what it'll be. Here's the final one. We must always be in awe of the Lord. We must always be in awe of the Lord. Mark ends his gospel very abruptly. Look in verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid, period. That's it. The women in Mark's story don't see Jesus. The women in Mark's story don't tell anybody about the resurrection. There is simply in them trembling and bewilderment and fear. I think that someone missed the implications. A well-intended believer missed the implications of telling the story this way, and so they tacked on this ending to smooth out and finish up this gospel. But here's my question. What's wrong with ending the story with fear and trembling and amazement? What other response could you possibly have when you go to a tomb and you realize that Jesus has risen from the dead? Is it not a fearsome, awesome, amazing thing to have a risen Savior? Is it? I think it's a perfect ending for this story. I believe that you and I need a Savior that astonishes us a little bit. We don't know anyone like Christ in our lives. We can't compare him to anyone. So we struggle with how it is we should relate to him. So when we hear Jesus say, Come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, then we make him the soft grandmotherly type who smothers you in her bosom. Let me go, Granny. Jesus does say come. Jesus does give us rest. Jesus does give us peace. But that doesn't make him weak. When we see Jesus going off, leaving the 99 to go after the one sheep who is lost, we call him, oh, gentle Savior. But being gentle does not make him weak. When we hear Jesus saying, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering candle I will not snuff out, that does not turn Jesus into tender mush. How should we relate to Jesus? I wonder, and I don't know this, but I wonder if this is not the reason that C.S. Lewis comes up with the description he does of Aslan, the Christ figure in his Chronicles of Narnia. And every preacher in the world has probably 
quoted this from C.S. Lewis, and I'll cast my lot with the rest of them. In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, Mr. Beaver says to Lucy, to Susan Lucy, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will be, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm glad Mark ends with trembling and bewilderment and holy fear. I think it prevents us from ever presuming on the Lord. It prevents us from ever forgetting that he is the great king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, forever and ever, hallelujah, hallelujah, the lion of Judah, And so we need him to be because only a powerful Savior can smash hearts of stone, hardened in unbelief, cynicism, intellectual arrogance, and replace those stones with those hearts with with hearts of flesh, full of love for Christ, full of love for others. Only a powerful Savior can change the world and make this world a place of justice and mercy. And so we must never lose our astonishment and our bewilderment or our awesome fear of Christ and the message of the gospel. We must retain this view of him if we will ever change the world with him and through him and for him. And that's what he has called us to do, church, to change the world with him and through him and for him to rise up with strong faith and deep love and great trust in his presence and say yes to Christ, our awesome, risen Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that these implications, just that we would hear them, Lord, and that they would change our lives. Lord, we need to be people of greater love for you. We need to stop our busy lives and and take count of all that you have done for us, the multitude of things for which you have forgiven us. We need to be in amazement that you would give to people like us your forgiveness. And when we realize that it's true, Lord, how we should love you. How our faith would grow as we say, if you can change someone like me, you can change anyone. Deep love, strong faith. Lord, we need to be people who realize that you are present with us. We need to be people who realize that you are a strong and powerful Savior. There is no obstacle too strong for you to move out of our way as we seek to do the work that you have called us to do. Lord, we need to be people who say yes to you and no to so many other things in our lives. No to the sin that we love so much. 
No to the sin that keeps pulling us back because we love it. No, Lord. Yes to you. To living for you. Yes to loving you. Yes to making you first in our affections. And Lord, we need to remember what an awesome God you are. You took on flesh to be like us yet. Lord, you are not like us. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lion of Judah. Powerful. Lord, help us to remember that power as we rise up from this place and go out into this world as your church, determined that we will do our part through your power to make this world a place of justice and mercy and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.